Nelson Mandela once said that education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. On this podcast, we will be discussing and exploring issues of education and social justice. Hello, everyone. My name is David, and on this episode of The Most Powerful Weapon, we will be discussing the state of education funding in Colorado. We will share some history on this topic, discuss the effects of COVID-19 on school funding, and provide ways you can support ballot initiatives that would provide more funding to Colorado schools. Before we get started, I think a couple introductions are in order. Like I said, my name's David, and I grew up in a family of educators, and after 15 years of working in the restaurant business, went back to school to get my teaching license. What I took from my mentors has guided me throughout my career. Build relationships, don't be the sage on the stage, but the guide on the side, and teach social justice. Over the past 11 years, I've done my best to do these as I teach eighth graders about the history of America from the Constitution to Reconstruction, seventh grade students about math, all the while developing a K-12 restorative practices program. And I'll introduce myself as well. Uh, my name's Andrea, and an interesting fact about me is that I once made it to the Colorado State Skee-Ball Championships, and I've always wanted to put this on my resume when I'm applying for teaching jobs. Um, but I'm a six-year middle school language arts teacher in the state of Colorado, and this next year in the fall, I'll be starting graduate school, studying social justice education. I'm passionate about the education profession and believe that education is the most powerful weapon. And today on our podcast, we have a special educated guest, and his name is Micah Stir. First of all, thank you guys for having me um, on your podcast. It's really empowering, I think, for our profession and for, for me personally as a teacher to have these things produced by teachers, by people who are in the classroom doing the work. Um, we have a perspective that I think uh, gets overlooked far too often. Like we become part of policy and we become part of these, you know, theoretical discussions. So thank you guys for sort of taking, taking this up and leading the charge. Uh, I've, I've been a teacher in Colorado um, schools for 15 or better years now. Um, I started as a teacher as a Peace Corps volunteer in Kazakhstan. Um, so I, my initial um, sort of training came with Soviet trained kind of master teachers. Uh, I then left the profession. I was a social worker. Uh, I was a newspaper reporter for a long time and then kind of came back in the last 15 years into education. Um, so I've been in charters. I've been in, in the large comprehensives. And again, I appreciate you guys uh, asking me to be on the podcast. Yeah, we're excited to have you here. Thanks, Micah. So David, as a teacher myself this last school year, uh, it was admittedly pretty crazy at the end of the year with COVID-19 happening and school closures moving us to distance learning. I'm curious, David, Micah, uh, what you guys think um, education funding in Colorado looked like previously and how it's going to look after COVID-19. So how do you think COVID-19 is going to affect school budgets in this upcoming year and the years to come? Excellent. I'll jump in on that. Uh, from what I've seen, uh, Andrea, to be honest, it, it's not looking good. Uh, because of the budget stabilization factor and the Great Recession, it's estimated that since 2009, uh, Colorado has underfunded, underfunded its education by 7 to $8 billion. Uh, this has led Colorado to be ranked near the bottom in categories like teacher pay, uh, competitiveness and salary, and per-pupil funding. Um, we were making 
a little bit of progress in the last few years, starting to pure people funding was starting to rise again and there was uh, more funding, but COVID's uh, 19 has, has hit the budget really hard. Uh, we had to stay at home. Most of the economy shut down except for essential economy to flatten the curve. And we this had a negative impact on tax revenue, right? And tax revenue is a big part of how uh, our budget and our state is funded. So this led to the state budget having a shortfall of around $3 billion, uh, which was 25% of the total budget that the state had to figure out a way to fill. Uh, so, uh, thankfully, uh, our legislators purposely left education to the end uh, because they know how grossly funded it already is, but when the time came, uh, K-12 education was looking at a cut around $500 million, and it would have been double that had not Governor Polis set aside $500 million of the CARES Act, federal money uh, that Colorado received because of uh, COVID-19. Uh, so that shorted up a little bit, but we're still, most districts are looking at between five to 7% cut from their budgets next year. And when individual schools look at their budgets, they're gonna have to decide what's going to need, what's, what's going to need it to be cut. And I think so, that's, David, I think that's kind of where we, this will be interesting, right? So I appreciate that we, you know, this, that we filled some of that gap but even a five to 7% cut now, now it's like, where does the cut come? Right? So I'm super, I'm very concerned that, um, you know, we, you, you mentioned we never recovered from the great recession stuff. We've already lost tons of, of great teachers. We're already kind of on the shoestring. Um, I'm very worried that this, then we start to say, well, teachers can teach at home or like they, they start shifting the burden further to teachers. Right. Now you don't need a building because I'm in my house. Now you don't need this tech stuff because I, you're basically shifting the financial burden further to teachers, right? It, you're, you're looking at the idea that we have to buy our own supplies writ to 7% of a total budget, um, which then further disincentivizes people going into the profession. It further disincentivizes teachers from putting in all those extra hours to do, you know, to do all the things that weren't funded already, which every teacher we know does, right? Like, so all those you know, you start losing more and more programs and more and more stuff, which ultimately all of this then trickles down to the students who can least afford it, the families who can least afford to not have robust quality teachers and, and education happening. So the numbers are there and they look better than I thought they would look, to be perfectly frank. But I'm very worried about sort of what our priorities look like in terms of allocating the existing money and where we're going to where we're going to put that put the cuts, right? Like where, do, where does that money come from? Yeah, just to go off of what you said, Micah, I know with the CARES Act money that was given to us from the federal government, that really does help us sustain for this next year. But I know looking two years, three years out is really where you're going to see those budget cuts hitting even harder um, because we're not going to be seeing that uh, money and financial assistance from the federal government as much. Um, and I know one of my friends is a music teacher in the Denver metro area, and she reached out to me because I've been talking a lot about this issue and was asking me if I thought that her job was on the line as a music teacher, um, because a lot of times specialist teachers can be the first ones that are going to be cut in these scenarios. And I know as a teacher myself, just how important those classes are. Uh, so I'm curious, David, you, uh, in your last role, you've been a restorative justice coordinator um, working with students K through 12 to process through their emotions and help teachers utilize social emotional learning. 
So I'm curious how you think that the budget restraints and the higher need for mental health post-COVID-19 will also affect schools in the fall. Right. Uh, that's a really good question. And for me, just like it's been throughout most of this time under uh, COVID-19, it's hard to know what's going to happen, right? There's this uncertainty. Uh, what I do know is that every student and every staff member has experienced trauma over COVID-19. Some more, some less, but we were already in a position where we were seeing more and more students come to school with some sort of trauma. And that trauma shows itself in many different ways. Uh, and it's good to have a number of resources, school counselors, social workers. Uh, this restorative practice can be beneficial in working with, uh, to support students as well. And I guess, my feeling, my my feeling is, is that there's going to be more trauma and less support. That's that's what my feeling is. Um, my restorative practice position was cut, and so that's just something personally that I can add to this. Is that I'll be uh, teaching in the classroom next year instead of doing restorative uh, practice work. So uh, it's try not to live in fear, but that's my fear because uh, trauma gets in the way of learning and trauma can be seen in negative behavior that can affect the learning of other students as well. And so to have the resources to identify that, to work with students, to work with ourselves um, is important. And I feel like similar to what you talked about, certain programs might be cut. I feel like support for students maybe cut as well. If I could actually jump in and sort of tie those two points together, because I think that they're, they're probably connected in a way that it, an educator might see, but a non-educator might not. Um, so Andrea, you were just talking, you have this friend who's a music teacher. We see like cuts to the arts, to music, this stuff happening all the time. When, if we were really worried about trauma and students and sort of, we would be beefing up music and art budgets, right? Like that's what those, that's what they do, right? They give these, they give our students the opportunity to sort of express the stuff and work through it and, and sort of develop themselves into like fully functional, emotionally mature human beings. And so if you lose things like that, um, you know, it may seem like, well, this is just a budget thing, but now you've taken out this vital, this vital support that students have that, you know, our music, our colleagues and our art colleagues and all those folks and our, and our gym teachers are doing all the time, right? I think people think, oh, well, you know, in art you go and you draw a picture, or in gym you go and you play floor hockey. And it's so much more than that um, in terms of supporting all of us in that. The other irony of, of art and music that I just thought of, Andrea, which is an interesting point is, I think the moment we're in right now in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, in terms of sort of this justice movement, um, that movement's impossible without art and music. This is the moment of hip hop ascendant, right? We have. I'm in my mid forties and I have never lived in a world that didn't have hip hop culture and rap music. And so you've had this art form, this music form informing people for 45 years or better. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons I was asked, I was just talking to one of my friends who's from the middle East and, and he's like, well, why now? Like, why is this happening now? And I think it's because you have whole generations of people who have been listening to black people and, and sort of, internalizing these things through art and music so you cut art and music out of your schools congratulations like it 
well, I'm kind of, did we really go to the moon on this stuff? But I think that might be an intentional way to then pot potentially like neuter future movements, to take away people's ability to do social justice movements, to take away people's ability to interact um, in, you know, through like a justice lens. And so it's more than just like, oh, we have this, this budget cut we have to do, let's just get rid of our music teacher. Like your society collapses without your music teacher. Your society collapses without your art teacher. You can't function without a gym teacher. And so I think the stakes are far larger than we, than we sometimes want to acknowledge. Yeah, I would also add that getting rid of those positions puts more on the classroom teacher um, to incorporate more of those things or do more of those things because they know that that's good for students and students need it or because admins telling them, oh, you need to be doing this since they no longer have gym. Like now you need to make sure they're doing these things. Um, so as a teacher myself, I've been in situations. I remember my first two years of teaching, I sat down with my principal and I kind of played the dumb card one time because she was asking me to do all of these things every period. And I had 45 minute classes with these middle schoolers. So I said, I don't know how to fit all of this in 45 minutes. Maybe I'm just not good at organizing. Can you help me? And after sitting with her, she realized, oh, this isn't even possible. Like all of the expectations I'm putting on you in 45 minutes aren't even possible. Um, so I think taking away these services puts more on teachers to be the mental health person, to be the art teacher, to be the music teacher. I'm not trained in all of those things. Um, as a teacher, you know, I go to school for certain specific trainings and yes, I learn more uh, as a teacher because that's what I like doing is learning, but uh, it just makes it harder for the classroom teacher as well. And I know there was a really interesting post by the ACLU where they posted every state and the ratio of counselors to students and the ratio of like social workers to students and what, it, what the average should be. And it was like astoundingly high. I think there was one state that was meeting what the recommended average was of the ratio. And that is insane. Like I don't have the numbers off my hand, but you can look it up um, and just see kind of what we're talking about in terms of this has been happening for years and then the effect of COVID-19 is just going to exacerbate some of these um, cuts that we're seeing for sure. Yeah, um, I know for a fact that before last year and my switch to restorative practices, I'd been in the classroom and the, I tell you, students, there were students that came to school every single day and it wasn't because of math and it wasn't because of history. It was because of their music class. It was because of their art class. It was because of, you know, and what that did was it got them to school. And then once they're at school, then all of us together can work with those students and we can get them in the math math classroom and even though they may not love math they're there we're teaching them right they're learning and so uh, I, I just think these specials programs are, are, are way more important than uh, some districts give them credit for when they start cutting them so and our restorative justice folks and our counselors and, and all of those people right like I do my very best and I pride myself as an educator on, on being good at those things from from a teacher point of view but I am nowhere near as good as the counselors I work with. Like they're obvious, they're obviously better than me at this. Like, you know, that's, they should be, that that's the entire point. And so that becomes my concern is, is, you know, teachers already wear lots of hats and we wear them as well as we can, but any, any like sort of self-reflective teacher knows darn good and well, they're doing a second rate counseling job because they're not a counselor.
So based on all of that and kind of where we see education funding in Colorado headed towards, I know that there's been a couple of efforts to try to um, find more funding for education. So one of the things that the legislator has been working on, um, and I know it's been a bipartisan effort to do this, is to put a measure on the ballot that would ask voters to repeal the Gallagher Amendment. So David, I know you have a little more info on this. Can you tell me more about what the Gallagher Amendment is and why repealing it could provide more funding to education? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Let me get into the nuts and bolts of it and then we can have a conversation around it. So if we back up and to school funding for a little bit, uh, once the total funding for education in each school district is determined, it is paid for out of what's called the local share, which comes from residential and non-residential property taxes. So the state then makes up for the remaining balance. So the Gallagher Amendment was initially approved by voters in 1982, and it was designed to maintain this constant ratio between property tax revenue that comes from residential uh, property and from business property. Uh, the effect of the Gallagher Amendment was to reduce the assessment rates, right? And the assessment rate is the percent of property value that is subject to taxation. Uh, whenever statewide uh, total residential property values increase faster than business property values. This year, the residential property rate was 7%, all right? Um, when Gallagher was passed in 1982, residential property made up 21% of funding. So it's dropped uh, from 21% to 7.9%. And what's not totally fair about this ratio is, is that constitutionally uh, commercial uh, property values are, will always make up 29% of the funding. So as property values go up um, and you look at that equal ratio that comes from property values that are residential and property values that are commercial, when property values go up, they have to lower the property value rate. So that ratio stays in effect. So we've seen uh, property value rates drop and the money that comes from property values, we've seen that drop as well. Uh, they estimate that between 1982 and today, property, uh, property, residential property owners have saved $35 billion. Um, and they, if the residential property rate last year was still at 21% before the Gallagher Amendment was passed, then that would have accounted for over $2 billion. And the, the negative factor, right, has never been over, um, I think, a billion dollars in a year. So we're just seeing that like all where the state has fallen behind on funding education, part of that has come from the uh, shrinking of the pie or the property uh, tax coming in from residential property tax. So what the Gallagher Amendment does, it can't raise taxes on property uh, owners. But what it can't, but what it's doing is it's going to freeze it at 7.15 percent, so it can't drop any lower. And what that'll do is that'll give uh, lots of people, schools, libraries, firefighters, police officers, and other um, groups that rely upon tax revenue. It'll give them at least some stability to know that 
this tax won't go down and down, but they can like figure out how much is coming in. And you said it's bipartisan and that's totally true because uh, just because property values are going up in the front range doesn't mean property values are going up in Southeast Colorado, Northwest Colorado, other parts of Colorado, but all of Colorado has one tax rate. So uh, if approved by voters, yeah, uh, it would just keep the rate the same and give people some stability on figuring out how much tax revenue is coming in. Yeah, I, I find this fascinating too as a lifelong Coloradan, um, how, how consistently we've underfunded based on property taxes. And property taxes is always sort of this third rail when you talk about education because, you know, in many ways, it's the, the racism, the structural racism that we see based on segregation specifically comes from property tax issues and all these other things, right? And so anytime, you know, we, we stop and say, well, it's, it's systemically racist, um, this is the kind of thing we're talking about, right? And so Colorado's fascinating because we have such a low um, property tax, that has incentivized gentrification, right? Because now I can spend more money, I can you know, come from somewhere else so I can do whatever, and I can move into people of color's communities and, and buy up all their property stuff because we have this artificially low property tax, um, which then destabilizes your community. I, you guys know me pretty well, like you know that I think gentrification is a form of violence, right? That's directed at communities of color and, and poor people. Um, so it's a fascinating sort of historical thing to me to sort of see that one of the factors in creating that was this idea of sort of trying to freeze these things and then it, you know, it's never floated properly to, to sort of finance where it is. And then you end up in situations where in some ways you've de facto privatized high quality education because you've underfunded your public education, which is the only education that, that poor people, working people um, have access to. And then if, if you're well to do, you're, you're accessing both your public system and then supplementing it with your own because you're not paying your fair share of taxes, right? Um, so it's interesting to me to see since 1982, kind of the unintended, unintended ripple consequences of something like that in terms of both underfunding your school and making it hard for us to do our jobs, hard for people to get equitable education, um, and in solidifying what are our fundamentally racist power structures. Yeah, I also think it's interesting. Uh, one of the things David kind of mentioned towards the end was, um, I think when a lot of people think of Colorado, they think of Denver, which is a city and there's the suburb around it, but there are a lot of really rural areas of Colorado and a lot of really rural districts that I know are struggling um, monumentally with budgets for schools. Um, I've heard, I have a couple of friends who I graduated with that are teaching in rural districts in Colorado and uh, they've previously taught in Denver public schools and some of the comparisons are very interesting. Um, in terms of what they're going through. So I think not only thinking about how this affects um, Denver, but Colorado as a whole, this really puts a limit on some of the smaller districts that don't, don't have the same uh, property taxes or um, income coming in there that other districts might get. Yeah, most definitely, because if you're in an area where you have lower property taxes, and let's say that 
next year, the property tax rate that was collected went from 7.5% to 5.8%. That would be less money coming into uh, the local governments off of less money because the property taxes are low and you know, rural working areas uh, are hit hard by this. Um, and then st basically uh, from the period of redlining where certain parts of cities were deemed to be good places to live and other places were deemed bad places to live. Well, the, the bad places had a red line drawn around them and it happened to be uh, highly black, highly African-American. And so uh, we see there's certain districts, school districts that are, that, that have kind of, that come up in those areas, you see they continue to have lower property values and there's lower tax. And I think that's one of the things Micah talked about too, was this uh, inherent uh, racism in property values, the taxes collected and who does every district uh, get a fair share of, of the money, right? This is part one of our two-part series on education funding in Colorado. Part two of our conversation with Micah will be released soon. Part two will focus on the ways you can support ballot initiatives that would provide more funding to K-12 education in Colorado. We hope you will tune back in to The Most Powerful Weapon as we continue to explore social justice and equity issues in education. As a new podcast, we really hope you will support us by following us on social media at TMPW underscore podcast. Again, that's at TMPW underscore podcast. Another way to help support us is to share our podcast with all of your family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. We hope you have a great week, and don't forget, education truly is the most powerful weapon. See you all next week.